Hey, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken. This is a channel podcast I started a while back trying to understand the the larger Methodist picture in America and the world abroad. I was a United Methodist. I'm currently chronicling what's going on in the United Methodist Church because I understand it better than a lot of people. I'm by no means an expert, so you need to double-check everything I say. Uh, I'm going to try and provide references for everything. Um, uh, I've got I've got URLs and maps and stuff, so... Um, I, I, from time to time, report on different annual conferences and what's going on in those regions. The the uh, purpose is not gossip. Um, it's because different United Methodists throughout the connection are trying to navigate the disaffiliation process or understand the politics at play in their various contexts, and there isn't really a perfect resource for that. So I pick one conference at a time and try to chronicle what's going on. And uh, so you'll see kind of me doing this. Uh, if it's not useful to you at all, then you know move along. But if this is useful to you, then I hope you will share it with people. Um, if you're in Alabama, West Florida, which I'm, I'm reporting on today, hopefully it's in the title of what you clicked on, um, feel free to send that with other people or share that with other people in, in the area. But if you're in another conference, whether or not it's in a similar context, I think it's just good to know what the practices are from conference to conference. So um, spend some time with me, see if you learn something interesting. Uh, this is a byproduct of some independent reading that I've done as well as some interviews. It's not gonna be as organized as other ones that I've done because for some reason Alabama, West Florida is just kind of a complicated picture. And when things are, are complicated, it's just a lot of different moving pieces. So I actually started collecting information on this almost a month ago. And I'm just now, I'm, I'm making myself film it because I just couldn't uh, get to a starting place. So let's uh, look at the map first. Uh, this is a map that the United Methodist Church has to, to show the different annual conferences in the UMC. Alabama, West Florida, if I can, I thought I could zoom in on this. Alabama, West Florida is on the bottom half of uh, Alabama. So the whole there's a North Alabama annual conference, which we may or may not talk about. But the southern half is combined with Western Florida, just in kind of the square-shaped um, map. So we're talking about coastal region, hot, humid place that is good to go to if you're in the beach. But man, I wouldn't want to live in a, a city or a rural area there. Uh, not like Oklahoma is a lot better. But anyway, um, we're talking about that region. It's overseen by Bishop uh, Graves. Let's look at this. I've got a spreadsheet that I try and break down a lot of the facts of different conferences on. I've been getting some help from a couple people who've offered to to help me put this together and just want to say thanks uh, to those people. You're going to see some blank spots where I'm needing help, so if you're good at collecting info, I, can, <laughs> I could use you. You can um, email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. So uh, when you look at, uh, I, I have three different trends I look at on the front end, number of churches, attendance, and membership uh, from 2019 to 2021, because that's the most recent data as uh, annual conferences meet all over the U.S. over the next two, three months, we will get updated information on what happened in 2022. But you'll see that Alabama, West Florida, I'm going to try and highlight the whole uh, uh, row there, uh, has declined a little bit faster in number of churches than other conferences, uh, has declined in attendance, uh, not quite as much as other conferences. Most other conferences were in the 40s. If you go down, oops. Um, yeah, some, yeah, most were in the 40s, so they declined not as much. And then in membership, they uh, declined 
Uh, man, that's all over the map there. So that's not a good measure necessarily of anything. When you look at their disaffiliation numbers, they've, uh, including the special session that they just had on May 7th, I want to say, they've lost uh, since 2022, they've lost 232 churches. So this is not quite the same graphic that you'll find on UMC resources because they'll go back to 2020 and show disaffiliations. But I just kind of wanted to see since the most recent data that we have, how much have they lost? They've lost 232 churches, which is almost 50%. It's almost half of their their conference, 43.5%. And then they're going to have another special called conference at the end of the year where they will allow 50 to 80 more churches to go. So when this is all said and done, they're going to be cut in half, it looks like. Now, this is the, the region where I, I'm having a hard time collecting information when you're looking at the annual conference, I'm not sure how to get good info on annual expenses or debt or assets or, in particular, reserves. My, I have a theory that uh, conferences that have more in reserves have been more um, gracious with the exits because it's not going to hurt them as much in the short term. Um, the annual budget is all I could get a hold of, and uh, it looks like in uh, 2021 it was uh, just shy of $7 million, and then it went up above and has stayed up above. My understanding is that's been slashed in half now uh, for the coming year because they've lost about half of their churches. Um, I actually spoke with their treasurer on the phone earlier. She was very friendly, and she was saying they're just too busy to answer any questions because they're dealing with all of these churches leaving and the, the implications that it has. Now, before all the churches left... Um, the estimate was that about 75% of the clergy were traditional. So that's kind of ex exceptional when you're looking at uh, most annual conferences. They're either evenly uh, uh, balanced or there's a clear liberal majority. It's always the laity who are maintaining a conservative majority in any annual conference. Their bishop is David Graves. Um, they've already had one special called conference this year. They have another one scheduled, and then they have a regular session scheduled for uh, June uh, 11th through 14th. And then um, I, I have some uh, well-known clergy and churches listed here, but it's by no means uh, 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 exhaustive. So let's, let's move over and talk about who Bishop Graves is. Um, this is a picture of him. He uh, uh, was elected to the Episcopacy in 2016, and he's the resident bishop of Alabama, West Florida, and he's also, since 2021, been the interim bishop of South Georgia Episcopal area. I learned in doing interviews uh, on him that he's actually not living in either of those conferences. He's living in Tennessee. He's a, a Tennessee guy. He's a native of Knoxville, Tennessee, graduated from the University of Tennessee, I would be kind of amazed at that, but I've already learned that Bishop Mande Muyombo of the North Katanga Episcopal area is living in the United States of America. So I, uh, and of course I'm in Oklahoma, where my previous bishop lived in Texas. I think the whole time he's been serving here. So apparently that's just common. I don't know why it's common. I don't know why it's uh, too high and ask for bishops to live where they're uh, working and ministering. But apparently that is kind of a high ask. Um, so according to the folks that I talked to uh, about Bishop Graves, he self-identifies as a traditionalist conservative. He, he uh, has publicly spoken that he wants to be amenable to churches that want to leave. He wants to help churches find the place where they belong. Even so, um, 
I, I read this article in January, a word from Bishop Graves, this is not a business deal. And so he says that over the last several months, this is in January, so it's been a while since then, he had heard time and time again that a local church needs to disaffiliate from the denomination because it's a good business deal. And so then he makes this statement that I highlighted, this business dealing is about power, money, and control. And of course, we've heard a lot more of this line since then. The notion uh, is, is accusing churches and leadership of not caring about the theology and the integrity and conscience of it. It's just about power and money. And of course, uh, people in these churches often say, you're projecting yourself onto us because clearly your concern is power and money and control. And so then he, he talks about the congregational versus connectional thing. We are not a congregational church, never have been. The trust clause reminds us that a connectional church, as United Methodists, as a connectional church, we ask first what is best for the whole, not a, what is best for my local church and me. As Christians, as Methodists, we are in the faith business, not the business of making deals. And of course, uh, as with any, I don't know, misinformation, there's some truth in there, but the thing is, the whole connectional uh, system was designed to maintain a high scriptural theological ethic. Once it got ideologically compromised and um, associated more with worldly values than biblical values, that's when the whole thing falls apart. And so it's, it really is a matter of conscience for local churches to insist on leaving, as we're going to see when we talk about the Dothan Church here in a little bit. One of the things that he said that really got my uh, warning lights going, and I highlighted it here, was there has been traditional and liberal theology since the beginning of time. And that is, of course, historically true, but the thing is, it directly ties into this conversation of, uh, hath God really said? You know, this is the, the, the question that Satan, the serpent, asked in the Garden of Eden. That is the historical liberal question is, do we really need to take these stringent rules so seriously? That's, that's kind of the liberal impulse, and it can be practical and helpful in some contexts, but within the church, yes, there have always been liberal voices, and they've always been a threat to the church, and so that's what Jude, the whole book of Jude is about. That's what Second Peter is about. That's um, what is, is addressed by uh, Paul in First and Second Corinthians. So there's, there's yes, historically, factually, that's true, but the liberal voice has historically been an enemy of a unifying biblical faith. And so that's what is really at the core here, to say it's been here from the beginning and it has a place in the church uh, where it's not a threat. That's, that seems to be where a big disagreement is, and he just talked past that. Then he talked about fear-mongering, and we've heard plenty about that. And then I feel like there was one other thing I wanted to highlight at the end, but um, there wasn't. So we're going to move on, but um, Bishop Graves has um, proposed a, a system where people just hold on and wait. Um, he has committed to do a, another special called conference in 2024 for disaffiliations, and he is aspiring to use paragraph 2549 to allow people to leave because, of course, 2553 expires at the end of this year. So he's been saying, hey, don't let the fear-mongering get to you. We will provide a way out uh, regardless of what happens at, at general conference the next year. And see, the thing is, he can't really promise that. If the Judicial Council rules that 2549 cannot be used as a uh, disaffiliation strategy, which, by the way, it was not designed to be, um, then he's going to have his hands tied and churches really are going to be 
trapped. So he's been asking churches to wait and see, to hold on. He's been making commitments to allow them to continue disaffiliating after 2553 sunsets. And um, I'm sure there are some people that think he, he holds that power, but it, it really doesn't seem to me and others like he does. Nobody questions his intentions there, but it, we, we question uh, whether or not he would go against a judicial council or the, the, the general um, church if they vote against allowing 2549 in that way. 2549 right now is, is being used in, in some places a whole lot uh, because of various reasons, but um, it's we've got this system in the, the the book of discipline which just doesn't work for the needs of the denominations. So um, it's kind of the wild west. Different conferences are doing different things right now. To my knowledge, I don't know if they're exercising twenty five forty nine in this conference yet or not. I just know that that's something being offered. The vast majority, the ones we know about have uh, used 2553 to get out. And even though Bishop Graves has said uh, this this is not a business deal, he has been gracious in letting them go. Um, so he's supposedly conservative, and he's been gracious. I already talked about that. Uh, 107 of the churches that disaffiliated, remember there were how many? 100 and... <laughs> I shouldn't have left that page... So of those that left, there were 193. 107 are going to the GMC. So the GMC has already started in that area. It looks like they're going to be maybe at up to 200 churches in this area. It's going to have the same borders, I think, as a current annual conference, Alabama, West Florida, but it's going to be called the Alabama Emerald Coast Conference of the Global Methodist Church, and they launched on May eighth. So let's let's they got a a Facebook page. So this was their video that they put together with Bishop Scott Jones uh, announcing the formation of the the Alabama Emerald Coast Provisional Annual Conference. So it hasn't even been a month that they're open. They're already making provision for new ordination services, and then um, these are some pictures of the leadership team that they have on board. So. Um, if you know any of these names, it looks like uh, Reverend Dr. Lester Spencer is going to be the president pro tempore, and from the different GMC people I've spoken to, it looks like these positions, the president pro tempore uh, positions, are people that are primed for becoming bishops whenever they have their next, their first convening conference and establish a lot of the structure here. So the... Um, the Facebook page for the Alabama Emerald Coast Provisional Annual Conference... Um, so far, it doesn't have a whole lot of likes. It has 164 likes, 345 followers, but hey, they've only been in action for um, a month. The The annual conference, Alabama-West Florida, has 3,500 likes, which is really you know decent. They don't have any presence on YouTube. or uh, <laughs> I found a, uh, a Twitter page for them that had uh, 62 following, and they hadn't made a post since 2019, but it's still mentioned on their website as a context. So uh, I don't know that Twitter's actually been very useful to annual conferences, but I've seen people try. Um, so anyway, the Alabama-West Florida conference has been cut in half now, and so I don't know. Their Facebook page is pretty quality and pretty active. Um, I still remember... Uh, was it Deborah Wallace Paget? No, no, that's a different one over at uh, West Virginia Annual Conference. She 
was really good at being pastoral and having regular updates on this. I, uh, I, I don't see, I don't see a lot of Bishop Graves. He seems to be very active behind the scenes. Um, the, the annual conference machinery, uh, is running off, off his leadership. And that's why we talk about bishops so much. Conferences really do change from conference to conference based on the leadership of the bishops. So other things about Bishop Graves, uh, he's been wanting, one of the bishops requiring people to surrender the credentials whenever they disaffiliate and go to the GMC. Um, now, there was a judicial council decision that uh, announced that, that bishops really shouldn't be doing that and that their credentials should be maintained and, and transferred and they don't have to turn in their, their papers. And so to his credit, you know, one of the things that they'll acknowledge about him is um, once the judicial council made this decision, uh, bishops like my former bishop, uh, Jimmy Nunn, just said, doesn't apply to us, give us the credentials or I'm going to file charges against you. Graves went the opposite direction. He said, okay, I was wrong, and he mailed them back to the people who turned them in. So that was a really gracious thing that he did. Um, is there anything else about Graves that I have? Um, oh, another cool thing about him, he hasn't restricted conservative caucus groups from res- uh, speaking at local churches, and this is one of the only contexts where I'm familiar. At the beginning, they did let the WCA and other caucus groups come and speak, uh, but then uh, they started cracking down as soon as the information they presented really started changing the picture. Uh, Graves hasn't been threatened by it. He's been gracious with conservative groups. Uh, They can speak at churches where they are invited and where the pastor approves. Um, And uh, I, I spoke with some of the caucus leaders. They said sometimes they've had big group meetings where there's like 20 to 50 churches that show up, and they call these moving forward regional gatherings. And so these have been really effective, and they're probably going to continue hosting those. Um, I've already gotten out of order in my reporting here. Um, okay, they are uh, they're of the 20 largest churches in this conference. They're losing about 17 of them. And to my knowledge, they're all going GMC. And so this is this is a conference where we're seeing that they've already lost almost 50% of their uh, constituent churches. There are conferences that have uh, have lost more, namely North Alabama. So North and South Alabama have lost almost, well, this North Alabama has lost more than half. And then I think the only other one that's lost more than them is Northwest Texas. Where was that? Yes, yeah, 74.36%. Um, so there, this conference is not the only one that's gone through that, but it is, uh, uh, it's a big deal. Let's, uh, let's talk about some churches that have had a hard time getting out. One was Bethlehem, Bethlehem United Methodist Church in Mariana, Panama City. I was going to maybe try and do a report on them. I reached out to them and they said, yeah, report on us. And then I said, here's the specific things that I need, and I didn't hear back from them. I, I guess they're pretty busy. But, um, you know, just to show that I'm not biased always towards the right, the, the conference did release a response to the complaints made by Bethlehem. Bethlehem started posting on Facebook all over saying, hey, we paid the conference what they asked for, and not only did they not let us go, but now they're taking over our our conference or our church finances and, and building and... Uh, it looked bad from what they were talking about. But then in the conference response, they said they took a church vote 
and they failed. They 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 voted to stay in the conference. Moreover, the the pastor has uh, refused to leave the pulpit, and he's just uh, causing all this trouble. And at least in this case, it would seem that I, I mean I don't think the bit, I think I would have heard if they were lying by now. So it just seems that you know Bethlehem United Methodist Church. I'm sure that there's been things said and done over the years that haven't been ideal, but um, it doesn't look like this is a slam dunk case of impropriety on the part of the the church or on on the part of the annual conference. Another church that's gotten a lot of attention is in Dothan, Alabama, um, and they I, I read an article first about them in um, April of this year, where a judge um, dismissed the motion to dismiss. He, he turned down the motion to dismiss on the part of the annual conference. The church filed against the annual conference saying they had no right to um, uh, hold them against their will. They wanted to leave. They wanted to disaffiliate. The annual conference said, look, they obviously belong to us. You don't need to get involved. Well, a, a, a judge did not agree. So they've carried the, the case forward. And the most recent article I found on this is uh, on an outlet called 1819, yeah. Uh, Dothan's Harvest Church is in a legal battle after the United Methodist Church disaffiliation. And um, there were two key quotes in this that I thought really highlighted the the two sides of this case. Uh, The first one is from Robert Northcutt, the the attorney for the conference. He said, this is a church dispute involving significant ecclesiastical issues and should be resolved in accordance with with the church law and process. So I'm not sure if Alabama, I think they filed in Alabama. I'm not sure if this is a, stir, uh, a state that defers to ecclesiastical authority or not. You know, Texas is a much better place to, to file against a conference than most, uh, even though most churches haven't, hardly any churches have. Um, continuing with the quote, the Harvest Church complaint is based on the false premise that somehow a church that has been associated with the denomination for 25 years, that has received financial and other benefits from the conference for 25 years, that received financial and other benefits from the conference, participated in the annual conferences, accepted annual appointments, paid apportionments, as well as other pension and insurance obligations for the benefit of our ministers, represents represented to the conference that the church property was subject to the trust clause and represented in numerous documents that it is a local church within uh, the denomination. It's somehow not really part of the denomination or the conference, he added in the filing. This case involves a local church that has been part of the denomination for decades, benefited by that membership, and has decided to disaffiliate and not follow church law governing disaffiliation, church property, financial obligations, and other responsibilities that Harvest committed to follow by joining the denomination. By the way, that would have been in 1968. Um, Actually, I don't know. Maybe they came on board after 1968. I don't know the church history there. But um, one of the things that is key here says that they have benefited, there's that word, by their membership in the United Methodist Church. The reason that local churches are leaving is because they disagree about whether it is a benefit to belong to this association anymore. I recently wrote an article on my Substack called uh, Happy for My Ex, where I talked about how annual conferences are better off letting churches go, and I used the metaphor of uh, a, a romantic relationship in characterizing what's going on here. What we're seeing is a breakup 
And uh, I, I compared this this point that the lawyer's making here. Look, they made money. They existed under our banner for a long time. We're entitled to money. We're entitled to some grievance payment. And that's, that is akin to a person saying, hey, while we were together, you made a lot of money. You benefited by being connected to me. Before I allow you to leave this household, you're going to have to pay me some money. Of course, that's a very dysfunctional relationship when we're talking about two people. For some reason, we imagine it's not dysfunctional when we're talking about an organization and a constituent member of that organization. It is very problematic for uh, a Christian organization to use coercive worldly power to constrain constituent members to pay them money. Uh, uh, one that that kind of meets the definition of extortion, you know. So, yeah, the way he phrases it here makes it sound pretty black and white. Another black and white thing is if you coercively hold on to people who want to get away from you, uh, that that does not represent the love of Christ. Um, I was really uh, they they got quotes from the the pastor of the church, Stigler, Ralph Stigler. I didn't watch this video that they they quote from. He says that this energy that the annual conference is uh, putting in, it's really doing irreparable damage to the people Jesus died for, people who were caught in sin, which all of us were, specifically people who were involved in practicing homosexuality. So he leans into the, the rhetoric about homosexuality. You know, most evangelical preachers in the United Methodist Church say, you know, we, we love and affirm our, our Christian brothers and sisters, but we just can't affirm this part of them. He's saying, no, 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 no. Homosexual practices, in the United Methodist Church, unfortunately, there are a number of pastors who will say that the Bible contains God's Word, but that not all of it is God's Word. So they end up kind of picking and choosing which parts of God are God's Word and which parts are not. It's totally true. Adam Hamilton modeled this in, in his book where he talked about the three buckets you can just throw some scriptures out, according to him. Uh, homosexual practices are condemned in the Bible in the strongest of terms, and yet the direction of the UMC is to say that this is not a sin or a problem. Uh, currently, thousands of churches are leaving the United Methodist Church because it's moving towards heresy. It's becoming an apostate church, and those who are going to stay faithful to God must leave to follow Jesus. People's tithes and offerings our leaders feel are holy and they shouldn't be used to prop up an apostate denomination. It's a belief of our leaders that we don't want to leave any money for that purpose that's been given for the glory of God unless a judge tells us that we have to. That's really why we're moving the direction and we're moving away from the denomination. I had not heard a single pastor speak like this publicly. Um, and you know, this really... Uh, there are a lot of evangelical pastors that I think would object to, they would just say it's not offered in the right spirit necessarily. But I, I think that is a firm biblical witness, and it makes a very clear point about uh, where he and his church stand, and they're willing to lose a lot of money on standing on their theological convictions. Um, I'm kind of amazed and disappointed that there weren't more churches willing to stand on integrity like this. They're really taking a gamble because, of course, court cases can drag out a long ways, and hypothetically, this court case could go into next year when there is no exit provision available to them, and uh, the conference could just file for exigent circumstances and take the building and the assets, and they would just be out of money at that point. And of course, we have seen that happen in many annual conferences over the last couple of years with different local churches that didn't play by the conference's rules. Or <laughs> in the case of like Struthers, if you haven't seen my report on that, we put it out like two weeks ago. Um, 
they didn't do anything wrong, and yet they still lost the property. So they're putting themselves in a vulnerable position here to stand for what's right and to stand against uh, the norms of our culture, which, according to the Bible, are sinful, and they're standing on uh, principle. Yeah, there was a post by a guy in my conference who was shaking his head at, at churches that disaffiliated because no longer will their youth be eligible for different scholarships offered by the United Methodist Church. And I commented and said, that's kind of the whole point. Like, this, this requires, if you're going to have integrity, then integrity moves require sacrifice. There's going to be a loss. And this is not something to, to shame people for. This is something to admire people for having integrity, to make a hard decision that potentially sets them back. You know, what, what, what the pastor here is clear about is um, personal integrity and the integrity of a local church is much more important than money. I wish more churches believed that. And of course, I'm not standing in a place of conscience either. You know, there were ways in which I really uh, compromised my conscience just to navigate my churches out, but I, I sure admire the heck out of people in churches that, that don't compromise and that require a high standard. Um, is there anything else to say? Um, yeah, I wanted to point out some more churches. Um, there was a church... Len Haven in Florida, on top of their disaffiliation costs, the Board of Trustees decided to charge them another $250,000 for money that the conference gave the church as a gift in 2018 for hurricane relief aid. So it wasn't for some kind of building project or anything. It was, you're ministering to the poor here. Well, now they want to leave. You're going to have to pay all that, that money back now. It just seems really bitty, bitter and petty. There was another uh, church... Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, Century. I think it was Century Church. They were a church plant. Okay, yeah, a new church start. They don't even have a building, just land. They're in Pike Road, Alabama. They're being charged $440,000 to disaffiliate. Um, They're being charged not only for the two years of apportionments, but also for any grants that they were given. And this is more than is being asked of much larger churches. And so... Uh, this is another one of those positions a conference can take while saying, hey, well, we gave you this money, but they have no way to pay it, and they obviously want to go. Um, the people I talked to were just of the mind that the conference is overwhelmed by how many churches actually want to go. They just didn't think it was going to happen, and they're losing huge areas of United Methodist presence, and they're just trying to hold on to real estate in, in urban areas. This is something we're seeing in lots of other annual conferences where they're happy to lose small rural churches that aren't in in big urban rich areas. But when you're talking about big urban rich churches or potentially in that way going, oh, well, we have missional strategies to consider here. You know, um, we're afraid we're going to need your your building, your assets. Um, There are more hostile conferences than this one. However, they're there is hostile hostility and resentment in the leadership structure of the conference. Um, centrists and progressives have joined forces in this conference. The Board of Trustees has been stacked. There used to be five traditional members on the Board of Trustees. Two of them were kicked off of the board on technicalities. Two others resigned, and now there is only one uh, conservative trustee on, on the Board of Trustees. Their Board of Pension and Health Benefits is chaired by a very progressive clergywoman who is going to be presenting to annual conference a motion to do away with post-retirement post-retirement medical coverage 
of anyone who leaves the United Methodist Church. So if you gave your entire professional life to the UMC and retired, you've been getting medical coverage, uh, medical benefits, they're going to cut you off now if you leave, even if you gave your entire professional life to the conference. Um, Auburn and Montgomery, those are two other churches that are worth talking about. They're obviously in large urban areas. According to people at both churches, there were clear majorities that wanted to go through the disaffiliation process, and yet both of them had clergy that were not sympathetic to the conservative caucus uh, ideology, theology, and they refused. They had already put other liberals on leadership in those churches, and so uh, the church boards voted not even to go through the, the process, and so um, a lot of people very angrily have left those churches or trying to hold on or are, are petitioning to go through the process anyway, and the superintendents have said uh, no-go. If, you're, if, you're um, uh, if your church board is not on board with it, then we're not going to do it. So Auburn UMC started a group, AUMC Moving Forward, where they've been chronicling as uh, retired clergy George Matheson has been leading them um, as they've exited the building and started their own congregation. This was, I think, their first service on April 30th where they gathered outside of a barn and he preached. Um, and then they've been meeting in a gym more recently. So uh, I'll scroll. Yeah, here's the gym. This was their Mother's Day service. They had a big turnout. Apparently there's a lot of good momentum around there. And the other one was... Um, Montgomery, and I haven't been able to find out as much about them. I wrote them, and I think they decided that they wanted to disseminate information another way. So anyway, I, I think those were the main things that I wanted to, to focus on with this annual conference. I'm sure there were a thousand other things that I could have focused on. Um, I, I, I never want to give the impression that, uh, that I think ill of individual leaders or... Um, Boards, I, I hope I'm clear. I just think there are a lot of incentive structures in place that don't help us behave like Christians. And so I hope a bird's eye view of an annual conference helps uh, people get clear about uh, the right and wrong of these things. Or if you're conservative, how it is that you want to navigate these things in your own conference. Maybe what you should be grateful for if things aren't as hard for you. Or uh, uh, maybe what you should be wary of if things are more hostile or if um, uh, they're not very accommodating the issues that I've covered with this one that I think apply to other annual conferences, I think paragraph 2549 is going to be proposed more and more under the table as, as a way for local churches to leave. Um, I, I think as the, uh, the, the thing that I'm really worried about is this dynamic as uh, large swaths of conservatives have already disaffiliated. What happens to those churches that are left behind? What's going to happen to this crew of 50 to 80 churches that come before the Alabama-West Florida Annual Conference in November after uh, they've already lost the majority of conservatives in their annual conference. Are they going to have a sympathetic voting body there that'll let them go? Or uh, at the end of the year, what I'm terrified of is that um, hundreds of churches throughout the United uh, States are going to be, um, uh, the, their conferences will refuse to ratify their disaffiliation and they will be entrapped at which point, of course, there will be lots of lawsuits. Or maybe bishops will try and dangle them along saying, hey, we'll use 2549 next year. Let's just see what happens at General Conference. So the whole mess of the United Methodist Church, quadrennium after quadrennium, we've had these problems. We've needed to split. We've kept kicking the can 
leadership has has been content to kick the can. They've gained a lot by putting things off and moving the goalposts. And it's very difficult for local churches to insist firmly on things now, uh, to have a public witness of, of taking conferences to court. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is worth considering, you know, one of the things that gets said by everybody is, oh, this is a terrible public witness, and it, it's taken away from the ministry of Jesus Christ. I would propose that it's a possibility that it actually helps the public witness of local churches when they are not willing to... Um, compromise with corrupt uh, practices, you know, or or institutions. And I don't want to get into the whole the UMC is evil thing, but I do think it makes a statement when a, a local church stands on principle and says, no, we're not going to compromise. Jesus doesn't compromise. Our, our Savior doesn't compromise, so we're not going to compromise. I think an uncompromising p- position um, on, on some things can make a great public witness just saying, hey, here's one group of people that's not bought out by money. Here's one group of people that's not afraid to be hated. Um, so it, it's up to local churches and leaders to decide if this is an issue worth risking being hated for, worth risking losing money for. And of course, I stand in a privileged place where I'm already out. And so um, it's it's kind of problematic for me to be saying, yeah, go ahead, risk losing your money. But even so, I, I, I just got to say how encouraged I am by faithful people around the country who are not willing to compromise their faith, who are not willing to be slandered by bishops or anyone else who might say that they're only concerned about power or money or politics, who, who really just care about what we're told and obedience, and um, who've just sobered up and realized that the United Methodist experiment is a failed experiment. You know, they tried it in earnest. It hasn't worked for decades. It's finally ending. We need, we need, we need to go. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up. I hope this has been useful to you. Um, if there are any corrections, just email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com, and I'll I'll publish corrections. Um, if there is any follow up that y'all think I should do, tell me. Um, I, I want to do whatever is useful to the connections. So I, I welcome any feedback and encouragement. And uh, I don't know what I'm doing next. Otherwise, I'd, I would tell you. Um, I think we probably have another interview coming out. So uh, I'll just do something again soon and hope you enjoy it. I'll see you later.